Good morning, Lakeside. I'm Mike Durning, a member of the teaching team here, and I'm so excited to be here with you for week two in our study of the Holy Spirit. We're going to be in Titus 3 today for starters, so you'll want to turn there. Today's topic is, what does the Holy Spirit do for us? It's always a risk preaching. Uh, you never know how people are going to react, right? Uh, one preacher was up in front to proclaim, Jesus died for our sins, and an audience member stood up and said, seriously, man, I just started reading that book. As we move through the series, you may have questions. This is week two. In week five, we're going to have a panel up here to answer your questions. If you think we aren't covering an area, un or we're unlikely to cover an area that you're curious about, you have questions about the Holy Spirit, please send them in, all right? We'll, uh, we'll try to work with them uh, on the fifth Sunday, get them into the series. You can email to the address that's on the screen, or you can text to the number on the screen. Don't call it. It doesn't receive calls. It just receives texts. So get those in as we go, and we'll be ready for that. Thanks. Years ago, I tackled a plumbing project. Uh, I had actually done the math of the plumber's quote versus how many hours I could take off of work and uh, uh, you know, still do it myself. Two days later, I emerged from the plumbing project determined to never ever do a plumbing project again, uh, to which I have lived up for the rest of my life. <laughs> when I was assigned this sermon by the teaching team, we began to plug things into it, and we found that there were so many things that the Holy Spirit does for us that uh, it was seriously in danger of becoming like one of those home repair projects gone terribly awry. Uh, so let's get right into it in the interest of time because we have a lot of ground to cover today. As Nate indicated last week, throughout the Bible, there are many symbols of the Holy Spirit. Dove, wind, fire, water. Almost a band name there. <laughs> I love water. It's really good. I love being on the ocean or a big lake and watching the tides. I love being on a ship at sea. Water is beautiful. When I was young, we'd camp in New Hampshire on a river that swiftly ran over worn rocks, and you could sit down on it and be carried along for hundreds of feet downriver over smooth rocks. And the dads would stand at the end to grab you before you went over the waterfall. <laughs> I'm kidding, there was no waterfall. But, but the rest is true. Water is fun. If you feel weak or uh, weary, don't go for caffeine. Consider the possibility you may be vaguely dehydrated. Drink some water. I am, in fact, about 60% water. You are too. Uh, we're just that far from drowning at every time. <laughs> Not really. Uh, but we don't, if we don't get water, we die. Uh, about three full days without water, and you're likely to die. Under optimum conditions, you may live for eight, but you won't be responsive or conscious or able to react much after three days. Water is life. I like drinking really, really cold water. I mean, I put it in the freezer till it's almost slush, and then I pull it out, and I get refreshed and cooled off. Water is soothing. And this symbol of the Holy Spirit was probably even more accentuated in a land like the Holy Land when the Bible was written. Hot, arid, dry, desert. There, all your life is built around water. Villages go up around wells, cities along rivers. And the first thing you check when you think about building someplace or settling someplace is that there's going to be water. So it's no wonder that the Lord chose this symbol to give us an idea of the Holy Spirit and his work. When he was looking for a great one, one of the ones he gave us was water. Here's Ezekiel predicting the Holy Spirit's work in the future. He says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. From all your uncleannesses and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 
and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. Water is cleansing, all right? And here his people will be clean and get new hearts, it's prophesied. Much, much later in the Bible, an event occurs in John chapter 7, Nate referenced it last week as well. It occurred during the Feast of Sukkot. The last day of the feast, a large water offering is poured out in honor of God's provision. And by the time of Jesus, the priests had actually gotten to a place where they were hauling great amounts of water up and poured it over the altar so it poured out onto the steps and ran down. It was an ostentatious display in a desert land. But it was to show how much God was blessing, so it was worth it. And during this dramatic, beautiful moment, I think it was that Jesus leaped up, as John 7 records, and says this, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John adds this, now this he said about the spirit, whom those who believe in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The Holy Spirit fills us up to overflowing so the water of life can gush out on those around us. This is our key idea for the day. The Holy Spirit is vital to every part of our Christian life. We are completely unable to be saved, live the Christian life, and navigate the complexities of it without the Holy Spirit. He is, in fact, as much a part of our spiritual lives as water is to our physical lives. With that in mind, let's read our key passage for the day, the one that will take us into our first section. Titus chapter 3, we'll be picking up reading at verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So we have here a standard passage like you can find in many other places about God's free gift of salvation. Not given based on our works, but given based on his own mercy. But look at how it happens, it says. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit is intricately involved with our salvation experience. We'll talk about it from this passage and some others, but our first main point is this. The Holy Spirit accomplishes my salvation. We tend to think of salvation in regard to Jesus, his death on the cross for us, and that's correct. And then there's the Father's love for us and sending the Son and his plan for our lives, all true and good. But beyond all that, the scriptures reveal that the Holy Spirit is very active in our salvation. In fact, he's a vital part of us being saved by God's grace. First of all, we know that he convicts. Here's John 16, 8 talking about that. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Jesus here, speaking of the coming of the Holy Spirit, which had not yet happened at the time he was speaking, but now has, indicates that the Holy Spirit would convict of sin. Nobody comes to Jesus without believing they're a sinner. They need to understand they're a, they need a Savior, that they are sinners in desperate need of rescue. The Holy Spirit does that for us, nudging us along to recognize that we are sinners that need his help. But there's more than that. There is a new action by the Holy Spirit which was described in our reading in Titus a moment ago, it talks about the fact that he regenerates us. So after we're convicted of sin and we become believers, he regenerates us. Think back to our opening passage, the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Linguistically, that structure is like this, washing that is regeneration and renewal that comes from the Holy Spirit. 
Both items are something the Holy Spirit does. Cleansing from sin results in or is part of regeneration. Big word there, regeneration. To take something from death to life again is what it means. We seldom encounter that word except when reading the writings of Dr. Frankenstein. Right? You know, from death to life again. It's alive, alive, he screams. But it's a perfectly good word. It doesn't have to be about monsters. In fact, hopefully not about monsters. In this case, it's about beautiful things. We were dead to sin, and Christ made us alive again. Right? Okay? Here's Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. But God, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And that's just part of all the Holy Spirit does in relation to our salvation. He takes that which was dead, that's us, a pul- gives us a pulse, spiritual life. I'm one of the few in this room who have had those electric paddles put on my chest, followed by the medical staff saying, clear, and then boom, shocked back. I missed the whole thing. I was unconscious. But you've seen it on TV, right? You know, clear, boom, right? The person, I wish I could have been my hair stand on end because that would have been more realistic. The person's body jumps off the table a bit and the heart starts to beat normally life. The Holy Spirit brings us back from the spiritual death that has daunted us, that has loomed over humanity since the fall into sin. Perhaps a few of you in the room are spiritually dead. You've never experienced new life in Christ. This is a great day to receive it. Salvation in the scripture is taught as something about new life. In other words, that we are dead because of our sins. We're hopeless. We cannot make it to heaven We cannot please God. We cannot change the most fundamental problems in our own lives. And only by his grace, offered up by his death for us on the cross, accepting and receiving Jesus as Savior, trusting in what he did for us on the cross, can new life be brought into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. You need that if you haven't had it before. In fact, I want you to take a few moments right now in the quietness of your seat and reflect on that. Can we all bow our heads for just a moment? And I'm asking for some honest reflection. If you are still dead in your sins, you've not trusted Christ as Savior, you need that new life. I'm talking to you right now. This is the day you need to be serious about it. You can do it right now from the quietness of your seat and pray out and ask him to save you because of what he's done for you on the cross. He paid for your sins. He wants to transform your life. Ask for that now. If you've done that just now, I would love to hear about it at the end of the service, but let's move on with our service. You can look up if you will, please. What else does he do beyond that? Well, he seals us. The idea is that an identifying mark is put on us spiritually by the Holy Spirit, declaring us to be God's. Uh, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That's from Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. The seal is a statement of ownership used commonly in the ancient world. In particular, in Ephesus, to which these verses were written that we just read, loggers would send their logs down into the water and they'd hit them with a mallet and it would make a mark on them, a seal to show this is mine and you can't claim it. Here's how serious God is about our salvation. He gave us his Holy Spirit as a seal. Nobody can have us. Nobody can take us. Nobody can claim us. We are his. Moving on, here's the part many of you have heard about in regard to salvation and the Holy Spirit. He indwells. He lives inside of us. Read with me a couple verses, if you will. 
Here he is speaking of it in John 14, another passage Nate read last week. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus says that when he leaves the earth, the Father will send another helper who he identifies as this spirit of truth, someone the world can't receive. And look at the progression. He indicates that uh, you know him, he dwells with you. He was already around. And Jesus says the Holy Spirit will be in you. Meaning that there was coming a time, which now is for us, when the Holy Spirit would, would, will be within us who are followers of Jesus. And then he adds the most interesting words. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus had already told them he was going away to prepare a place for his followers. That was up a few verses in verse 3. But when he goes away, the Holy Spirit is going to come and live inside of us, something Jesus elsewhere refers to as being better for them than if he stayed around. You ever think about that before? I'd love to have seen Jesus up there preaching, seeing the miracles of Jesus. Having the Holy Spirit within you is better, Jesus said, than having Jesus standing right beside you in real time right now on earth. And referring to the Spirit who comes to live in us at salvation, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Indicating that having the Holy Spirit indwelling us is just like having Jesus right here living with us. That's a powerful statement about what he is doing with us when salvation comes. Jesus is here because he is with us through the indwelling of the Spirit. And all of this happens at salvation. So here we have a pretty powerful picture of what the Holy Spirit does for us in our salvation. Just like water is the silent partner in our health that we seldom think about, the Holy Spirit is a silent partner in the Trinity in our salvation. We don't think about it much, but we are dependent on him totally. The Holy Spirit is very active in our salvation. He's vital to it. Arguably, a lot of what we experience here in our lives because of salvation is all about him. So if you're one of those Christians who thinks, oh, um, what does the Holy Spirit really do? The answer is here and what we've seen thus far, and we should be grateful for it. So here's our First question to reflect on. Knowing the Holy Spirit lives within me and seals my salvation, how can I rest my doubts and be at peace? Because some folk just live in doubt about everything. They're always worried, you know, always nervous. And when they think about salvation, they also wonder, you know, did I really get saved? Did I understand the gospel when I heard it? Did I really mean it when I prayed to accept Christ as Savior? That's just nerves. The truth is, if you're here and growing, you should be reassured. The Holy Spirit is in you and keeps that happening. After all, most of the world is not interested in bothering to follow Jesus, trying to live like him, love others, etc. It's not on their radar. They don't really care because they don't have the Spirit of God. They were never regenerated in salvation. Okay, so you know those hokey ads you used to see on TV years ago, but wait, there's more. Despite the incredible list of things the Holy Spirit does for us at salvation, also included in this free offer is the fact that the Holy Spirit is very active in our lives as Christians today. Here's point number two. The Holy Spirit accomplishes my growth. Here's 1 Peter 1.2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. So we're talking about this, growth because of his Spirit. Now the verse I just had on the screen, I know I picked it up right in the middle of a sentence. I don't usually do that. But that phrase, the sanctification of the Spirit, meaning the sanctification that comes from the Spirit, is common in Scripture. Sanctification comes from the Spirit. You say, fine, Mike, what's sanctification? It's the process of being made holy. It's a process. It takes time. 
but it's a work of the Spirit. That phrase, sanctification of the Spirit, sanctification by the Spirit, sanctification through the Spirit, it's common in Scripture. The other term we use for this besides sanctification is Christian growth or growth in the faith. Baby Christians grow up, become more capable. Let me illustrate. I was once a baby. I don't remember that, but I'm assured that it was true. I was once an infant. I don't remember that. I'm sure it must have happened. I was once a child, and I do remember quite a bit about that. And I remember wanting to be older so I could do way cool things like older people, like lift heavy objects and stay up as late as I wanted. By the way, I was so disappointed when I got to adulthood and realized I didn't want to stay up later. I wanted to go to bed earlier. had too much to do. I was once a teenager. Like all teenagers, as darling and lovable as I was, I sometimes chafed at the limits my parents put on me uh, without really fully appreciating what they had entailed. I wanted that decision-making power they had. Then I became an adult. True adulthood falling a few years after legal adulthood at 18. Uh, I wanted that decision-making power of adulthood. I wanted to grow up, and I finally did. I think he's almost done now. There he is. Then he died. No, I don't know. <laughs> it's as far as the video goes. So, all right. Waiting, wanting to grow up is natural. If I did not grow up, if I were a 59-year-old male standing in front of you at, say, three foot four inches tall, still behaving like a child, there would probably be a medically identifiable problem that explained this phenomenon, right? Growing up is what we want. Growing up is what we need. Growing up is normal. Growing up is healthy. Here's the thing. We get new life, regenerated from the Holy Spirit's salvation, and we're at that moment spiritual babies. Just little ones. But growing up is what we want. Growing up is what we need. Growing up is normal. Growing up is healthy. And just like there are incredibly complex bodily processes that are involved that make us grow up physically, there are a series of spiritual processes that take place in order for us to grow up spiritually. And that's all part of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. He's the one who's making us grow up. If you're not growing, it's possible the Holy Spirit isn't in you, that you don't know him. But if you are growing, it is the Holy Spirit doing it. And if you're not growing and you are truly saved, I'll bet it's because you are resisting some changes in your life the Holy Spirit wants you to make. And that resistance and your reaction to it probably is making you pretty miserable. Time to fix that. Another thing we can see about the growth is that there is a growth in spiritual power. As we grow, we begin to experience his power in our lives. The Holy Spirit empowers us for that life. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's Acts 1.8. Or, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. 2 Timothy 1.7. As our growth continues, we have an ever-growing confidence and sense of power to do the work that he has called us to do. There is a power in a surrendered life doing what he has called us to do. If you feel as though you're not experiencing that power, it may be because you're not doing the things he asked you to do. Just like you don't send a child out to ride a bike without giving him a bike to ride on. 
God doesn't send us out to do his will in this world without the power to do it. You just do it. You say, Mike, I don't feel empowered. Pray and go. Just do what he's called you to do. Having grown in him, act like a spiritual adult and do what he's called you to do. Speak for him when there's no one else speaking for him. Aid others when nobody else will. Give to the needy when no one else cares. Tell the unloved that he loves them. Go with power. Do it. There's also growth through scripture. It's one other way in which the Holy Spirit is working to grow us up in him. He illuminates the scripture. Big theological word there, though we use it for other things. Let me explain the idea. We know the Bible is God's word. It was inspired by God, which is, by the way, another work of the Holy Spirit. Here's a verse about that. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of the scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1, 21 and 22. The Bible came from and through the Spirit of God. But since we have the scriptures, what do we do with them? What can we do with them? In many ways, interpreting scripture is an exercise in study. I mean, there are basic Bible truths that anyone can get with one reading. But there are more advanced ones that we can only get through reading and study. And then there are very advanced ones that we only get through study and maturity. But the principal spiritual obstacle to our truly getting the word of God is us. Here's the verse, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2.14. Understand this, the scriptures are a closed book, a closed book to those who do not believe. They may understand some basics, but since they will not accept the prescription in their lives that the Holy Spirit has for them, they'll be unable to grasp the higher things. Here's the thing. The Spirit of God lives within, and he whispers. Let's imagine for a moment that I'm uh, having a very bad time, and I go and I talk to a friend. Here he is now. And I say, Tyler, I'm so glad you're here. I'm I don't know what to do. I'm so depressed. I'm feeling all alone and afraid. Uh, I'm broken. I, I don't know what to do, man. Mike, you know we're all here for you, but uh, even more, you need to listen to the Lord. In the, Bible, in the Bible, God says, Fear not, for I'm with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will withhold you. Now, Mike, that's right. We are with you always. You have our strength. You have no reason to fear. Did you hear the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking <laughs> after the word spoke? May have sounded vaguely familiar. <laughs> That's what happens. Let's say I'm feeling tempted to sin. I feel like the temptation is clawing at my brain and resisting. It feels like I'm dying a little bit. So I go to God's word and I open the Bible. And I read where it says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, brings, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It's James 1.14. Hmm. <coughs> and the Holy Spirit speaks again. Facing the path to death. The Holy Spirit is experiencing microphone problems. <laughs> And the Holy Spirit takes the word of God and says, now, Mike, resisting temptation may feel like death, but you're actually learning to live. It's when you give in to temptation 
that you are embracing the path of death. Let's say I'm having trouble communicating with my friends and coworkers. I don't have the words to say. I'm being pressured by others to turn back from my faith and I'm nervous. But wait, I remember something where Jesus told his disciples to stop worrying so much about what they will say in advance and let the spirit lead. I Googled that because that's how we do the Bible nowadays, right? <laughs> it says this, and when they bring you up before the synagogues and the rulers and authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. That's Luke 12, 11 and 12. Mike, what you are facing is not as bad as many people out there face, but I want you to go with confidence. I'm going to speak through you when the time is right. You see it? What is your battle? What is your need? The Holy Spirit will take the word of God, whether it's spoken in a service like this or spoken to you by someone else or read on your own or recalled from memory, and he will apply it to your heart as needed. Run to the Lord through the word and let the spirit work in you. This is the work of the Holy Spirit us through the scriptures, where he takes the word of God, he applies it to our hearts. And if you're sitting in church or reading the Bible or something, and the spirit really zings you, that's the Holy Spirit working. So think about it. He has given you life in Christ and he has assured your growth and he empowers you to do his will and he speaks to you through his word. And the question is this then, knowing my growth is secured, how can I best partner with the Holy Spirit in growing faster to maturity? Because when he speaks, if we don't listen, we're not partnering, we're running. Now we move into our final point, the Holy Spirit should be allowed to lead me. Now, if you're like me, when we talk about the leading of the Holy Spirit, many of your minds go immediately to some weird scenario where somebody awkwardly comes up to you and declares something they felt led to do, right? And you don't know how to react because, you know, you weren't there and they're saying God was speaking to them and the Holy Spirit didn't tell you. I actually heard one guy who approached a girl at college, I heard about one guy who approached a girl at college and said, God told me you're supposed to marry me. To which she replied, well, the least he could have done was told me too and walked away. <laughs> he approached her every day like that for two years with the same line. The story does not end with them getting married, by the way. <laughs> it was 1980, so the story also doesn't end with him being arrested. Probably would today. My point is, it's sometimes awkward when people claim direct revelation and you don't know what to do with that. And maybe you're even disagreeing with what they say, but you don't know how to say that because, you know, they're claiming it's the Holy Spirit and God. Understand first that leading happens in two areas. First, there is a moral and ethical area of the Spirit's leading. So despite our statements about loony people claiming the leading of the Spirit, uh, it's important to note that a good portion of the Bible teaching about the leading of the Holy Spirit is not subjective like that with no basis. It's actually quite objective, grounded in God's word. Look with me at Galatians 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So we struggle sometimes with temptations. Can we find the willpower to do what is right? That's how we tend to frame the battle in our minds. And some Christians surround themselves with rules that protect themselves from breaking some other rules, that protect themselves from breaking the rules that Jesus really gave us, because that's the only way they can see to get through it. Someone says, I, I'm not allowed to play cards because 
That might make me gamble. And if I gamble, I might lose control of using my money wisely, which I know Jesus wants me to do. Yeah, you can do that. Or you could just listen to the Spirit about whether you're being wise or not. And the same applies to so many areas, right? The battle is actually about who you're going to listen to, the Spirit or your own fleshly nature. And if you listen to the Spirit, you really don't necessarily have to build these constructs of elaborate rules to protect your life. You just need to listen honestly to Him and react. I'm not saying you can't have the rules if you think you need them. I'm just saying, listen to the Spirit. The clear point is this. The Spirit is continually leading us toward doing the right thing, the morally right, the ethically right, which we can see in the Scriptures plainly. All right? I've seen this working in the lives of believers, particularly new ones. And while people in the church are sometimes wringing their hands about whether the new believer is going to change their lives and who's going to tell this baby Christian that some of the things they're doing are things they shouldn't be doing as Christians, the new believer just changes. Not always, but pretty commonly. And you ask them and they say something like, well, God told me I was being vain or God told me I didn't need that in my life anymore or whatever, because the Holy Spirit is active. And here's what's tragic, really pathetic here, because there are a lot of Christians, a lot of seasoned, experienced Christians who stop listening to the Spirit and start trying to manipulate in their minds some reason or rationale for doing the wrong thing, whatever they want. That's just being led by the flesh with a Bible in your hand. So here are the first access for the Spirit's leading. He is encouraging, pushing us toward a walk with God, toward obedience, toward good moral and ethical choices. Don't ignore that voice. It's for your own good. Let's talk about the second one, non-moral situational leading. Okay, this is the part where the slightly cynical part of my nature comes out. Led by the Spirit is a phrase that comes from the Bible, so it is a real thing. Led by the Spirit is also Christian jargon. You know what I mean. You've heard people use it before that way. It's not only a phrase from the Bible, but also a phrase that Christians use sometimes when they don't know what they're talking about. All right? The problem is that led by the Spirit is, in a sense, a subjective thing. It's one thing to believe the Spirit led you to tell the truth instead of a lie. That's clear, supported by Scripture. It's quite another to believe the Spirit led you not to buy that particular car, but instead shop further. Try telling that to the used car salesman. God said I'm not to buy this car. Goes over well. Christianity has been rife with people claiming specific leadings in non-moral areas. The Spirit led me to quit my job and do this. Happens. Spirit led me to join the army. Could be. Spirit led me to, give, to tell you to give to my TV ministry so I can buy a brand new jet. <laughs> Maybe. The Spirit led me to tell you that you're making a big mistake, Buster. Yeah, you. You know who you are. <laughs> I'm not picking anybody, sorry. It's always the words you want to hear, right? Why wouldn't the Spirit just tell you instead of telling me, right? Sadly, every claim to be led by the Spirit's leading is not true. Or actually, in some cases, fortunately, sometimes it's not true. So let me make a few observations to help you sort it out. Let's call them Scripture-informed observations. Number one, the Spirit's leading on non-moral things is not normative. Let me explain what that word normative means. Things are normative when they establish a rule or norm of behavior. Okay? Because it's possible for well-meaning Christians to be so passionate about believing something that they fool themselves into believing that the Spirit has led them into it. There is no place in the Bible that requires you to believe or follow it from someone else. So if I were to say to you, I sense the Spirit telling me that red clothes are completely off limits for Christians, you can laugh in my face. 
If I say, I sense the Spirit leading me to go to Montana to plant a new church, and you should move with me, load up the Conestoga wagons and we'll go. This does not in any way obligate you to do those things. You have the right and perhaps the obligation to review my plan, my qualifications, and your own finances and decide if you ought to do that. And the Holy Spirit may speak to you about it. It's not normative. Because I say the Spirit led me does not require something of you unless it's grounded in Scripture. Number two, the Spirit's leading on non-moral things does not always occur. Okay, so if we look at the book of Acts, we find some pretty dramatic times when the Holy Spirit led the church leaders to do something. Here's Acts 13. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Bonerbus and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Acts 13, 2 through 4. How would you like to be in that meeting? You know, uh, the Holy Spirit spoke to the leaders. We know it was the leaders from verse 1 that we didn't read. And told them that Paul and Barnabas should be permitted to go on some mission trip to which the Holy Spirit was leading. When you're in a room and all the spiritual godly people in that room that you respect have the same impression at the same time, it's probably worth taking seriously. But to be clear, it doesn't always work that way. In the early church, they didn't even always work this way. In fact, they really weren't looking for it. Because more commonly, you read in the book of Acts and the apostles are saying things like, we talked about it and it seemed like a good idea to do this. Right? And they acted. So just being clear, if you sense the Spirit telling you to do a good thing, you'd better do it. But if you sense nothing and you see a good thing in front of you that you should be doing, you'd still better do it. There's nothing in the Bible that says you have to wait for the Holy Spirit to say something about it. I'm telling you, I've seen people wait for years to do the right thing, waiting for a sense from the Spirit. I'm waiting for the Spirit to tell me it's the right time to talk to my neighbor about Jesus. It's been 15 years. That's not faith. That's paralysis. You have a commandment in Scripture to go tell other people about Jesus. You have power from him to do so, so just act. Which brings me to my third observation. The Spirit's leading should never be used as an excuse to violate God's word. Note I put the Spirit's leading in quote here. Sometimes we're mistaken, self-deceived. I've had people claim that the Spirit was leading them to do something that was sinful. I mean, it's right there in the Scripture. The Spirit told me it was okay for me to do this, but you look in the Bible, they, they name a sin. They're saying it's okay, the Bible says no. That's using the Holy Spirit as an excuse. Don't do it. It will not be appreciated by the Holy Spirit. Pitting his word against his spirit, misquoting God, not good. Having said that, despite all these things, observation number four, the Spirit's leading on non-moral things should be highly regarded. For you personally, in the quiet of a moment, when you have reason to think it is the Spirit's leading, when it's in line with God's word in the Bible, and especially when it's something you normally wouldn't think of or do, take it seriously. It does happen. Our whole team is going to be up here in week five, and among other things, answering those questions, for example, we're going to talk about sometimes that we experience such leading. So I don't want to steal too much of that thunder, so I'll tell you just one from years ago. I was called by the Spirit to be a preacher when I was in my teenage years. I want you to understand who I am. I am the most literal, objective, scientific guy you will meet on most days. My heroes are people like Spock or Sherlock Holmes. I know they're fictional, but you get my point. All right. So for me to feel something at all takes a mighty big wallop, and yet it was there. And feeling I should be a preacher was clearly from God. 
So years later, it's about 1988, Terry and I were married. I'd completed my training for ministry, and I was working at the Christian University where I'd completed my training, but in their engineering department. I was doing very little real ministry. We were suffering financially. They didn't pay much, and uh, we weren't making it. I wasn't doing what I'd trained to do or what I was called to do by God. And I began to consider sending out resumes. I began to think about finding something else. Now, if you know me at all, you know I go in campaign mode. My wife calls it Nazi mode, which is somewhat less kind. But uh, I was imagining resumes going out all over the country at that time, and I was going to push until something happened. And the Spirit literally told me not to bother, that I was just days away from it happening anyway. And it happened. I received a call from a lead pastor in another state, seemingly out of the blue. I didn't know him. He'd heard about me through a family friend connection. I had certainly not heard of him. We talked on the phone that night, and he said, Mike, I sensed the Spirit telling me that this is going to work. I sensed it too. Of course, there were the formalities to follow, but that's where we ended up serving for several years after that. We're all going to go together uh, up here, week five, and talk about some of these experiences. The Spirit does lead, sometimes in everyday, non-moral, situational things. When it comes to leading of the Spirit, whether moral or ethical or just day-to-day situational, we have to look at it with the right frame of mind. Inside of God's will for us, inside of his plan, his moral and ethical will, inside of his guidance, there is a beauty in life. I'm not saying there will never be trials or troubles. We know there's persecution, misfortune, natural disaster. We live in a fallen world. But there is a beauty in a life lived as God intends. All we have to do is enter in. In front of every luxurious hotel, you'll find a doorman. Inside of the hotel are wonders, beauty, high thread counts, gorgeous architecture, art, furnishings, lovely fireplaces, well-appointed rooms, a good view, hopefully. You get in by one route. The doorman opens the door and you go in. It's the same thing with our lives in Christ through the Spirit. The Spirit is our doorman, ready to usher us into all the beauty, the wonderful things that God has for us. And he opens the door for us again and again and again and tries to usher us in, to step through, to do what he leads. Do we do it? Final question. What opportunities did I miss by not listening to the Holy Spirit's guidance recently? How can I remind myself to listen more attentively? And I want to take a moment and just let that sink in. I want you to reflect on that question and let the Spirit speak to you about it because that's what this series is all about. All right. Whatever that was, start doing it. The Holy Spirit is vital to every part of our Christian life. That was our big idea today. The Holy Spirit accomplishes my salvation. He convicts. He regenerates. He seals us. He lives inside of us. The Holy Spirit accomplishes my growth. He implants in us a desire to grow. He empowers us to act and grow in him. He enlightens God's word, making it see it clearly and how it applies to our lives. The Holy Spirit should be allowed to lead me He speaks to us about moral and ethical choices, and we should listen. And every once in a while, he nudges us with ideas of things we ought to act on, and we should. We are completely unable to be saved, live the Christian life, 
and navigate the complexities of it without the Holy Spirit. He is, in fact, as much a part of our spiritual lives as is water to our physical lives. And I hope that it will be true that now that you've seen all that he does, you'll be unable to stop seeing it. The Wizard of Oz was a big hit upon release, and ever since, Dorothy moves through an ordinary, dull, black and white world. But then about one-third of the way through the movie, courtesy of a good old Kansas E3, she is catapulted to a magical world full of color. It was probably more magical for those who had never seen a movie in color before it was made in 1939. Similarly, in TV, a transition was made from black and white to color in the 1960s. There are actual shows you can watch from that era that start in black and white for a few seasons and then transition to color. Top one in my mind is the Beverly Hillbillies. Seasons one through three, black and white. And then all of a sudden, September 15th, 1965, it was in color. If you had a color TV set yet, some people had to wait for that. And then you find out that Granny's dress is blue and Jethro's shirts are usually red checked. The curtains are yellow, golden, and the carpet is red. It adds, uh, well, kind of obviously color to the show. Here's the thing. The color was always there. You just didn't know it yet. Same thing for us in our Christian lives. We had this salvation we celebrated, but we never thought about the key role the Holy Spirit was playing in it. We felt this pressure to grow up as believers. We didn't recognize its source. We felt something speaking to us from the Bible. We didn't know it was him. We did something wrong and we felt guilt. We didn't know it was him. And we were pushed and prompted to speak for him and do things for him. And we didn't recognize it was him. Here's the thing. You can't buy a black and white TV anymore. Who would buy it? Who would go back to black and white when they could have color? And it's my prayer that after this series, you'll be unable to go on seeing your Christian life the old way, but only through the lens of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Now you know. And it's the job of each and every one of us to know him, to listen to him, act in confidence as he empowers, and to expect great moments in our Christian lives, in our faith through him. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes, please? Father, we need you. Through the gift of the Holy Spirit, we know that we can have you in our lives in a more powerful, more dramatic way. You're already there in that way. The Holy Spirit is with us continually, and we know you as Savior. And yet we have disregarded this. We have taken it lightly. We have not listened. We have not paid attention. Change us. Send your Holy Spirit to us with renewed force and energy. And let us have a renewed passion for listening. In Jesus' name, amen.